Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Be covering verses 26 through 38. When you start a new job, your boss tells you what to expect, hopefully. When you join a team, the coach lets you know his or her expectations. When I get in the car to go somewhere on a car drive with my kids, at least one of them will usually ask, how long will it take to get there? We all like to know what to expect. God's Word sets our expectations. In our passage tonight, tonight the angel Gabriel will give Mary a glimpse of what to expect. Inform her that she will be expecting. And in so doing, gives us a glimpse of our own of what to expect from our coming Salvation, please follow as I read Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and trying to discern what sort of a greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Father, I would ask this evening that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Women today have many advantages over their foremothers, at least in terms of the number of resources that can help them navigate through pregnancy. What to Expect When You're Expecting is one of the more popular books first published in the 90s. 
It proved a great help to my wife as we prepared for our firstborn. Wise mothers-to-be listen to their own mothers and other seasoned women. It can help them walk through the trials of gestation. But imagine the first mother, Eve, given no manual, no instructions, no mother to look to to help her walk through her Genesis encounter of new birth. Mary and Joseph are given no instructions, no special instructions on how to raise the Messiah. But this encounter between Gabriel and Mary communicates a mutual trust where the Lord God's entrusting his own son to the arms of a young, inexperienced teen mother. And Mary trusts the Lord her God to see her through the unforeseen trials that lay ahead of her. In our passage, I believe that Mary teaches us things about what we too might expect as we walk with God by faith. We are to expect trials. We are to expect redemption, and we are to expect grace to endure through them. A little background. Mary here is visited by the angel Gabriel in the sixth month of her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is the angel's second miraculous birth mission in under a year. He is named elsewhere in the book of Daniel. He is only one of two angels named Michael being the other. And his holy errand takes him to Nazareth, an obscure town in the north, unnamed in the Old Testament. Mary here is introduced as a virgin betrothed to Joseph, a man of the house of David. Betrothal in that day was stronger than what we call engagement. To break it amounted to a divorce and usually required fault. Mary would have been 13 or 14 years of age, as was custom in that day. Why was it that Jewish girls married so young? Some have suggested that it was chauvinism, that girls were not worth educating. Others called it a kind of social security to set girls on a course to be productive and be protected within the context of marriage. And there are some merit to these ideas, but it really came down to a very practical matter. Women and girls were scarce. There were many Jewish men, and men who would not marry outside the Jewish race sought a Jewish wife. And men at that time, when they couldn't afford marriage, had to wait until they were established, and oftentimes there were not enough available women their same age. And when you consider the strong emphasis on marriage that the Jewish people held, where up to 98% of adult men were married, the result was quite fruitful with such a strong marriage ethic with high, much higher birth rates than the surrounding society. Like religious people today who have higher marriage and birth rates than the surrounding secular culture, the Jews of that day outpaced their Greco-Roman contemporaries. Some scholars and historians 
estimate that the Jews made up some 10% of the wider Mediterranean world population. That gave the Jews enormous influence and paved the way for the Apostle Paul and other missionary church planters in the rapid spread of the gospel in the first centuries. It is into this context that the angel Gabriel brings greetings to Mary. Notice that the angel calls Mary favored, and in her startled reaction repeats this affirmation to assure her against her fears. Why did Mary find favor with God? Well, like Hannah and other godly women, she demonstrated the kind of faith and character one would hope to find in the one entrusted to be the mother of the Lord's anointed. Mary is greatly troubled by this angelic greeting, which foreshadows her trials that lay ahead of her. In our passage, Mary's fear turns to faith as she receives this news that she will conceive and bear a son, the one long hoped for in Israel, who would reign once again on David's throne and deliver God's people from oppression. When one is chosen unexpectedly, perhaps to play an important role in a musical group or a sports team or a promotion at work, it's quite an honor. But this for Mary was something overwhelming, beyond common comprehension. As Mary listens to the the accolades the angel has to say about her coming son, she responds with a mere humble question. How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary, in saying this, is not doubting, like Zechariah in the prior passage, nor is she questioning Gabriel's authority. Mary, though quite young, understands how the world works. She implicitly understands that this child will not be fathered by Joseph, her betrothed. And contrary to modern arrogant assumptions, Mary and her contemporaries knew that the lame don't just get up and walk. The blind just don't see, the dead don't rise, and virgins don't give birth. It requires an act of God. Gabriel is not offended by Mary's question, but he doesn't respond with a medical answer that satisfies the modern desire for technical information. Rather, he informs Mary that she will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit from the power of the Most High God. And Mary's response is quite remarkable. Realizing that her life is about to change dramatically, that her reputation will become suspect and perhaps even endanger her betrothal to Joseph. Mary is not consumed with her reputation. She has not post her encounter on the social media of the day seeking the admiration and the sympathy of her friends and followers. Whatever stresses and anxieties were stirring within her, she 
quietly submits to the Lord in humble acceptance. I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. In contrast to our my body, my choice culture, Mary knows that, she, that her body is the Lord's temple, that it is his dominion and his sovereign claim over her. She trusts her Lord to do what is pleasing in his sight. And what is happening to Mary is a very big deal. But rather than make it about her, she surrendered to the Lord, embracing this great news of this marvelous thing that God is doing in the world, accepting this great privilege to be a participant, the bearer of Israel's Redeemer. Mary would not and could not know the trials that lay ahead. Like Frodo, the ring bearer in Lord of the Rings, she's embarking upon a grand quest with the fate of the world on her, entailed in her small, frail body. Mary and Joseph will be quite inconvenienced, forced to travel in the late term of her pregnancy to fulfill a census requirement. They will endure indignity when there is no room for them in the end. They will have to flee to the land of Egypt to escape the wrath of an enraged king determined to keep his reign of power. They will later return to Nazareth, likely deal with gossip. Then there's the trial of raising a perfect child. There's a running joke in my extended family about some who become parents and who once gave their own parents great fits of trouble, who are somehow blessed with perfect kids who do not give them the same trouble. That's a far cry from what Mary and Jesus encountered with Jesus who was absolutely perfect, sinless. How often would he correct them? perhaps even without saying a word. How hard would it have been for Mary to raise her younger children, never being able to live up to the high bar of expectations set by their eldest brother? Adam and Eve named their first son Cain, which means acquired. And scholars suggest that they believe that he was the promised one who would crush the serpent's head. And then they raised him, and they realized it wasn't him, for he was just as sinful and selfish as they were. We can just imagine our first parents with no predecessors, no guides, and living long with the memory of what it once was like in a sinless world, now broken and fallen. Adam and Eve were the founders In fact, charter members of that dreaded club of parents who have to bury one of their own when Cain would take the life of his more righteous younger brother, Abel. Mary, too, would join that unenviable club. And her greatest 
trial, when as a widow watches helplessly, as her beautiful little boy, now a grown and perfect man, innocent and righteous and gracious and loving, always doing the will of his father, will be whipped and tortured and crucified by Roman soldiers under the pretense of trumped-up charges given by wicked and envious men. The world had lost its mind. I speculate that Mary nearly lost hers. Mary came in a long line of Jewish women who wondered, who fantasized about what it would like to to bear the promised Messiah. Such an honor. But all of their expectations failed to even approximate God's plan for his own son to follow a very difficult path that first would encounter encounter great trials before achieving our redemption. The life of Jesus follows the J curve, where first you go down before you come up again, suffering precedes glory, as is testified throughout Scripture. It is only after trial that we find our redemption. The angel's description of Mary's son gives us a glimpse of what we might expect in our redemption. Mary is instructed to name her son Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, meaning Yahweh saves as, she, as the angel will tell Joseph where he will save his people from their sins. He will be called great, the son of the most high. He will be holy, the son of God. None of the prophets bore these titles. Mary, at this time, is not thinking the second member of the Trinity, but something is definitely new. She will have nine months to ponder the meaning of what it means for him to be the son of God and 30 years to marvel of the great work of God in his life. The angel declares that the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And it's here likely that Mary's expectations, along with the expectations of all Israel, would diverge from the Lord's will. Israel was looking for a Messiah to overthrow foreign rule, to restore the glory, the glory and the prosperity economically, militarily, and spiritually as in the days of David and Solomon when Jerusalem was at its zenith. But such was too small a vision. God had something different in mind, world conquest, and the dominion of his son over the four corners of the globe. In verse 33, the angel offers a glorious plan that this son will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We need this reminder. In our day of political polarization, bombarded with narratives of fear regarding pandemics and climate and economic disaster, existential crises that threaten our prosperity, Our political leaders will always fall short of our expectations, disappoint us. But God's man, 
the God-man, the true King of kings and Lord of lords, will establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness forever and ever. In that kingdom, there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more thorns infesting the ground, where death will be no more and there'll be no more reason to weep. And in that kingdom, we will enjoy him and enjoy each other in a renewed creation in a new heavens and new earth forever and ever a world without end. Amen. So what does the first coming of Christ mean for us in terms of our redemption? We really can't overestimate the boost to human dignity that came with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. In a world that devalues life with abortion policies, human trafficking, euthanasia, and other attacks on the image of God, we cling to the incarnation as the basis for affirming the beauty, the glory, the dignity, the equality of every human person. In the wonders of reproduction as part of God's design, and a yearning desire that runs deep throughout the natural order. Deer populations have to be controlled, ants and hornets that like to nest on my property. Young couples face the pressure of starting a family from their parents. And perhaps there's nothing more common than bearing offspring, and yet something seemingly miraculous. When Stacy and I were dating and getting serious but not quite engaged, she let slip wondering what our children would look like one day. I knew I had her then. <laughs> or maybe she had me. I was eyewitness to the birth of all seven of our children. A wonder to behold, and my wife has said that she could endure the pain and the trial of birth, anticipating the joy of holding that precious newborn. New birth does not come without blood, sweat, and tears, naturally or spiritually. God, in his wisdom, willed that the biblical matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah, would all suffer seasons of infertility in, a, in an age when a woman's identity and status was wound up with her ability to bear children. Most women yearn to bear children, but it's complicated with financial pressures, academic pressures, health problems, expectations falling short with problems during pregnancy, the whole matter of finding a suitable and reliable husband. But into this spirit, into this heart of yearning, God's Word says some amazing and profound things. God's Word actually turns the world's obsession with childbearing on its head as he speaks through the prophet Isaiah that more are the children of the barren woman than the woman who has a husband. What is Isaiah even talking about? What only makes sense in the light of the gospel, in the great commission of the Lord Jesus to evangelize 
the world, the propagation of spiritual children. Bearing children is important. Birth mothers are very important. But spiritual birth mothers and fathers are also essential for the kingdom of God. Consider the contributions of unmarried women, especially into the mission field for the last 200 years. Extending the kingdom of God into some of the hardest, reaches place, hardest to reach places on earth where men cannot go. It was only because Elizabeth Elliot was a woman that she and other widows were able to reach the violent Aka people of Ecuador after their husbands were killed. This week I'm coming upon my 30-year anniversary of my conversion. I was 17 years old and led faith by a man 50 years my senior who explained the gospel to me with clarity and simplicity. I was on a youth trip, youth group trip between Christmas and New Year's. And I don't remember what the youth pastor said in our group meetings, but I remember the kindness of Jack Morrison and the most penetrating question I had ever heard. Tucker, what's the worst thing you've ever done? And the Holy Spirit used that penetrating question to open the floodgates of my heart, to stir up the muck and the mire of my sinful desires. And I discovered that God could forgive me of my sins. And when I embraced that forgiveness, experienced the cleansing and the freedom of being made a whole new person by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again is to receive God's Holy Spirit, the gift of redemption purchased by Jesus Christ, by his perfect life, death, and resurrection. If you desire peace with God, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ this Christmas. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. And if you are in Christ, please know that we depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit and his grace to endure our trials. So how did Mary, and how do we endure the tumultuous road of redemption? Well, God gives more grace and power. Notice the first thing Gabriel said to Mary, the Lord is with you. This is much greater than a Jedi motto in the Star Wars series. This is the Lord's very presence, his power and his grace. How was it that Joseph was able to endure when betrayed and sold into slavery by his brothers and then falsely accused and thrown into prison in Egypt? The Lord was with him. Genesis 39 says three times. How was it that the judges were able to do their mighty deeds? It was the power of the Spirit that rushed upon them. How was it that David was able to endure his years as a fugitive on the run from the madness of King Saul? The Lord was with him. And so the Lord was with Mary. The angel answers her question with these words, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Mary did not do anything great in and of herself. She was not a Marvel superhero leaping over buildings and smashing things to pieces. Rather, her refuge was in the Lord. He was her hiding place. She abided in the shadow of the Almighty. How will you and I endure when we are up to our neck in trials, overwhelmed by grief and sorrow like many in our midst have suffered? with the loss of loved ones recently, both expected and unexpected. By the grace of Christ, we abide. And to further confirm the power and presence of the Lord, the angel informs Mary that her older cousin Elizabeth is also expecting once barren. Elizabeth is the illustration of this final point, that nothing will be impossible with God. The pioneering missionary William Carey famously said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. God's people are right to expect God to work in our lives, to demonstrate his power, and to shower us with much needed grace. And it's that hope that gives us confidence to press on in the long and perilous journey. The recent film, Sabina, tells the story of Richard and Sabina Wormbrand, founders of Voice of the Martyrs. It begins in 1930s Romania, as life was getting turbulent leading up to World War II. Richard and Sabina were worldly, carefree, living the good life as functional atheists. But then Richard came down with tuberculosis that almost cost him his life. During his long recovery, he evaluated his priorities and converted from nominal Judaism to biblical Christianity. It would take Sabina longer, but she followed. Richard became ordained as an Anglican priest. As the trials and pressures of World War II ramped up, Richard and Sabina loved their neighbors and gathered a small flock of converts in their city by their kind witness. As conditions grew harsher, it became clear that Jews were being sent off to concentration camps to be killed. At great risk to themselves, the Wormbrands and their congregation helped many Jews escape certain death. Richard and Sabina were arrested and tortured many times. And each, on each occasion, released by higher powers beyond their control. But then the war shifted as the Allies gained the advantage, and the Russians were coming, determined to drive out the Germans. But Richard and Sabina shifted their strategy. They who had been helping the Jews to escape now began to show mercy helping the Germans to escape the murderous wrath of the Russians. Only the gospel can overcome natural hatred and resentment, to show mercy to those who ridicule us, oppress us, torture us, and even take away those we love 
like Mary. Richard and Sabina Wormbrand were simple people, but faithful to God's will for them. They too endured many trials by God's grace. They only had one natural son, but brought many sons into the kingdom among those who were once enemies of the cross. They share the likeness of the one who left the safety and glory of his father's right side to enter a dark and hostile world, born vulnerable to a teen mother, to undertake the greatest rescue mission the world has ever known. If you would follow him, you can expect trials, but you can trust him to bring forth your redemption to give you grace to endure until you enter the glory of his holy presence. Let us pray. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for the wonderful gift of your Son who entered into this world to provide our redemption, to deliver us, to restore us, to make room for us in heavenly places in your presence. May we ponder and enjoy and glory in this marvelous truth as we celebrate the birth of Christ. May he lead us and prepare us as we await his glorious second coming. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.